Our New Testament lesson comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have ever felt like not enough, this story is for you. But we'll come back to that. We're beginning a new series this week, Sacred Ordinary Days. After all of the hectic holiness of the holidays, after the frantic activity that accompanies Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year, after all of that has settled down into the regular routine, that regular routine can seem awfully ordinary. Now when we aren't in the midst of a special liturgical season like Advent or Lent, we call it just that, ordinary time. That term actually refers back to how we count Sundays. We number them. Ordinary time comes from ordinal. It's a way of arranging a collection of things, a way to identify one distinctly, but to do so in relation to all the others. It's not actually meant to imply any sort of evaluation on how special one Sunday might be over another. But our human nature tends to fight against that. In some ways, ordinary time is the middle child of the liturgical year, at least if we allow ourselves to indulge in a few stereotypes for just a minute. Advent seems to me like the firstborn. Advent always gets mentioned. It's an overachiever with packed pews, candles, and wreaths, and it leads us into Christmas. There are rules to follow, and Advent does not break the rules. When the bows are put on the wreaths, when to light a purple candle versus a pink candle, and when the hymns can appropriately turn into carols. Lent, then, might be the youngest, the baby of the family, stirring up some sort of attention with far fewer rules, even slipping under the radar for a number of traditions. As Lent makes way for Easter, when resurrection is afoot and everything we thought we knew, like death and sorrow and sighing, end up vanquished forever, well, Lent and Easter, they will lull you into thinking you know what to expect, and then all of the rules will change. Ordinary time is the name given to all of the Sundays in between. And anyone who is a middle child or has a middle child knows that sometimes that's 
the description, you're not the oldest and you're not the youngest. Ordinary time is when it's not Advent or Christmas or Lent or Easter. It's the Sundays in between those fancy days that carry us from one to another. But middle children, do not despair and do not be afraid. Ordinary time carries with it a holiness and a sacredness all its own. Now, ordinary time might also be the language we use to describe the makeup of our daily living. Waking up, washing our faces, brushing our teeth, going to work, walking to school, running errands, greeting one another, chasing kids, making dinner, doing the laundry. All of that can seem ordinary. But here is what I hope we'll discover together in these coming weeks, that just as our liturgical ordinary time is infused with more goodness and grace than we might sometimes realize, so too are the ordinary moments of our daily routine. In other words, there is nowhere, not one part of our lives, where God is not. The word became flesh, John's gospel tells us, and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. That's what incarnation means. And to some ears, I suppose it might sound untheological or unsophisticated or undignified even. But according to our faith, that is the way things are. Presbyterian pastor Frederick Beekner, he puts it this way. He says, all religions and philosophies that deny the reality or the significance of the material, the earthbound, and the ordinary, they themselves are denied. Moses at the burning bush was told to take off his shoes because the ground on which he stood was holy ground. And incarnation means that all ground is holy ground. Because God not only made it, but walked on it, and ate and slept and worked and died on it. One of the blunders that religious people are particularly fond of making, he says, is the attempt to be more spiritual than God. In other words, trying to separate out the spiritual from the secular, the ordinary from the extraordinary, that is not only to labor in vain, it is to labor in significant misunderstanding. There may be no better place to remember all of this than in the story of Jesus' baptism. Up until now in Matthew's Gospel, Others have carried the storyline. Mary and Joseph, the Magi, Herod, John the Baptist. The way that Matthew tells it, Jesus himself has done absolutely nothing special, nothing even worth recording other than being born. And yet when he comes up from that water, the heavens are opened and a voice says, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. How can this possibly be if he has not healed anyone yet? 
He hasn't resisted Satan in the wilderness. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't even restocked the bar at a wedding celebration. All of that comes later. All that he has done to this point, as best we can tell, is go about the daily business of everyday life. And for this, he is beloved. By this, God is well-pleased. Yes, it is true for Jesus, and the same is true for us. In our tradition, baptism is grace. It is all grace. We are counted as God's children before we have anything to show for ourselves. It is available to each and every one of us before we know it, before we doubt it, before we confess it or sing it, certainly before we understand it, before anything else. We are beloved by God. Grace always comes first. If you have ever felt like you weren't enough, grace insists otherwise. Grace means that you are enough, always, just by virtue of being. Now, I imagine that as you came into this space today, you saw our baptismal font. I say that in part because of its size. As Presbyterian fonts go, it is enormous. And I say that in part because of its location. The truth is, no matter what happens up here, you can't see any of it without also seeing the font. We see everything through the font. We see nothing without it, and that is how God sees us. When God sees us before anything else, Before anything specific, God sees a beloved with whom he is well pleased. My friend Sarah grew up in a preacher's home, which meant she went to church twice every Sunday and a few more times during the week. But she is quick to tell you that it was not in the sanctuary that she learned what her baptism meant. Her mother, who for the record was not the one who earned a living by preaching, would wake Sarah up every day and say, Get up, go wash your face, and remember your baptism. And when she would call her family to dinner each evening, she would say, Go wash your hands and remember your baptism. Anytime the activity included water, no matter how mundane, the instruction still came. Remember your baptism. Sarah says, it probably sounds silly, but in middle school, when I felt invisible or worse, inept, I would find a water fountain in the hallway, and I would watch that water burst up in the air and arc back down again, and I would hear those words, remember your baptism. And she says, just in case that doesn't sound silly enough yet, I will tell you, I do it still today. You or Sarah may think it sounds silly, 
but I think it sounds sacred. I know that a number of you feel overwhelmed by the world these days. It is literally and figuratively on fire. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to pray is a common refrain. Remember your baptism isn't bad guidance right now. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was baptized? He said, it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Now, traditional scholarship has long asserted that Jesus' baptism signals his humility. His humility in submitting both to God's call over his life and submitting to John's authority in the community. And scholarship has also long asserted that John's activity at the Jordan implied a vote of low confidence in the Jerusalem authorities. You see, before John spoke of and offered repentance in the river, such things were only available in the temple, where they were under the eyes of the authorities, where they were subject to the right circumstance. John talking of repentance outside of the temple and Jesus meeting him there and saying, I'm going to be a part of this. Jesus walking into the water and saying, let it be so this way. They were declaring, both of them, that God's redemptive activity can be found anywhere and everywhere. So wherever God's redemptive activity is needed most, it will be found there. Martin Luther, whenever he felt overwhelmed by the powers of evil in the world, he would say to himself, Martin, remember that you are baptized. And he would remember that to trust in his baptism meant to trust that Jesus is Lord. And to trust that Jesus is Lord is to trust that nothing and no one else is. And that is to trust that the waters of baptism wash down not only over us, but over everything that is in flames around us. Now make no mistake, to trust in that promise that The waters of baptism will rush down and carry us toward righteousness and toward God's promised day is not passive activity. It's like our font right there. You cannot see anything else without first seeing this. Everything here is seen through the eyes and promise of our baptism. And what if we lived that way every day? What if we looked at one another that way? What if we remembered our baptism every time we encounter another person? A friend of mine, he attends a church where every Sunday in the announcements, the pastor says, by being here today, we do not presume that you are Christian. It is simply our hope and our commitment that we will be Christian to you.
What if every time we remembered our baptism, we remembered that to be Christian is to show the love of Christ to everyone we meet, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they struggle with, what tradition they claim, what color their skin. What if it were always our hope and our commitment that we would be Christian to everyone we meet? Rebecca told you, the font up here, it is full of water today. It is filled more than it usually is even, and not because we're baptizing anyone, but because Jesus is inviting us always to remember our baptism. So when you come forward for communion, or after the service has ended, you are welcome to come and dip your hands in it. You are welcome to splash around a bit, if you like. You are invited to touch the water for yourself and be reminded that the promise of God is tangible. And don't be shy about it. You don't have to be holy to touch it. It's just water. It is ordinary water, straight from the tap. It is ordinary water for ordinary people. It's only the reminder that's extraordinary. Which means, I suppose it's nothing special. But it is everything we need. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.